Welcome to the On Centerline podcast, a show where we discuss the trials and tribulations of learning to fly from both the student and flight instructor perspectives. We feature real aviators in all different chapters of their careers, talking about the things we all deal with, but rarely discuss. So join us as we take on the challenges, hardships, and celebrations that pave the runway to being a professional aviator as we strive to stay on centerline. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's uh, been a little while since I was able to do the last episode in which we talked about the National Airspace System, but uh, I'm finally getting back around to uh, doing our next installment of our ACS review. And uh, today we're going to be talking about performance and limitations. And this uh, particular section can be quite straightforward, and yet it can be very involved at the same time. There's a lot that can go into it that I don't think gets adequately covered in normal private pilot training. So we're going to kind of dig in a little bit and uh, get into the details and kind of the subtleties of performance and limitations so that you have a better overall understanding of the concepts we are discussing and you'll know how to present them and to approach them uh, on your check ride here. All right, so let's start with our objective. We're gonna dive right into it. Our objective here is to determine that the applicant exhibits satisfactory knowledge, risk management, and skills associated with operating an airplane safely within the parameters of its performance capabilities and limitations. All right, pretty straightforward. Let's go ahead and dive into the knowledge items. And here it says the applicant demonstrates understanding of elements related to performance and limitations by explaining the use of charts, tables, and data to determine performance. Now, this can be one of the most frustrating things for private pilot candidates. And and as you're learning to fly, there are a lot of charts that at first look, you know, they, they seem very cryptic and very hard to interpret and understand. But really, once you get down to the bare bones of it, They all work essentially the same way. It's always about basically two axes, an X-axis, a Y-axis, and where these two uh, lines of data meet is is ultimately kind of how they work. Sometimes you do get into uh, a third axis here or there, or, you know, it gets a little more complicated, but overall they work on a fundamental uh, level the same way. Now, unfortunately, it's going to be hard for me to talk you through how to read a chart here on the podcast. Maybe I'll uh, make a YouTube video of that in the future. But there are some things that uh, we can discuss about these performance charts uh, over the podcast. And again, these are really the most important things to know and understand about these performance charts. And they're often overlooked. And at the same time, if you do overlook them, it could definitely be grounds for a failure on your checkride. So let's pull up a performance chart here. I'm going to see what we got. All right, so I've pulled up a takeoff distance chart for a Cessna 172P, 172 Papa. Now, many 172s are going to be very similar, no matter how old or new it is, but certainly uh, they're not all the same. So you definitely want to make sure you are referencing the correct performance charts for the aircraft that you are flying. 
including any uh, upgrades, STCs for any new engines or anything like that, that your particular aircraft might have. If your aircraft has an STC for a 180 horsepower engine, and it was originally certificated with, say, a 150 horsepower engine, you can't use the same performance charts that are in the original POH because all of those numbers are based off a 150 horsepower engine. So the STC for the new engine should give you uh, new information as far as gross weight and, uh, and what numbers to reference for performance. But looking at this chart, uh, we've got a whole graph uh, with columns and rows. This particular chart is for a short field takeoff. And while reading the chart itself is, is pretty straightforward, the thing that gets overlooked so often is the conditions and the notes section. For every single performance chart you ever read, it is so critical that you read the conditions and the notes that are available there because that's telling you the circumstances under which these numbers were derived. And anything outside of those conditions needs to be accounted for when you are doing your calculations. That's where the notes section comes in. The notes generally will tell you how to uh, change your numbers for different variables, such as the surface of the runway, such as uh, for a headwind or tailwind, or what the outside air temperature is. Now, here's one thing to understand first and foremost. Depending on the year of your aircraft, the amount of information in a given performance chart or in the POH can vary widely. In general, Back in the day, the older aircraft, 1950s, 60s, even 70s, you're not getting nearly as much information in those POHs as you do these days with modern aircraft. So that can leave a lot of interpretation up to you. For this chart that I have in front of me, we have a column for the weight, and this is for max gross weight at 2,400 pounds. We have the next column for takeoff speed and indicated airspeed. We have a next column for pressure altitude in feet. And then we have various columns of temperatures from zero degrees Celsius up to 40 degrees Celsius. Now, if you're looking at any chart that includes temperature as a variable, you can be confident that that chart is going to be accounting for density altitude. That's why the temperatures are there. If we remember, our definition of density altitude is pressure altitude corrected for non-standard temperature. And of course, our pressure altitude is what you would get if you were sitting in your plane and you set your altimeter to standard pressure at 29902. Whatever your altimeter reads at 29902 is what your pressure altitude is on that day in that location at that elevation. But of course, our aircraft doesn't care about pressure altitude. The only thing our airplane cares about is density altitude. That's the only thing it knows, and that's the only thing it cares about. That is what it's going to base its performance on. So if you're ever reading a chart that does not give variations for temperature, usually it will have something in the notes that says for every 10 degrees above standard or something like that, or sometimes every 40 degrees Fahrenheit above standard, increase distance by this amount. But if you were reading a chart that didn't mention temperature at all, then you have to assume that 
the altitudes listed are pressure altitudes, but you'll need to figure out the density altitudes for your situation and then read those pressure altitudes as if they're density altitudes. So in other words, you might be at a 3000 foot elevation at the airport you're at somewhere, maybe in the, the hills or the mountains. But on a hot day, your density altitude could be well over 7,000 feet. So if you're reading a chart that just has different columns for different altitudes with no mention of temperature, you're not going to read the column for 3,000 feet. You're going to figure out what your density altitude is. Let's say it's 7,000 and you're going to read the column, the the line items for 7,000 feet because Again, that's what your airplane thinks it's going to be at. But assuming that it does account for temperature in some way, then you'll just read the pressure altitude. So you'd read the 3,000 foot line and then you would read the, the column for the appropriate altitude or you would adjust the numbers for your pressure altitude as it's stated in the notes. Add so-and-so distance or reduce so-and-so distance, whatever the case may be. So let's take a look at the chart that I'm, I'm looking at here. This is again for a takeoff distance at maximum weight of 2,400 pounds for a short field takeoff in a Cessna 172P. The conditions for this data are flaps 10 degrees, full throttle prior to brake release, paved level dry runway, and zero wind. Okay, those are the conditions under which the numbers that are listed were derived. And any deviation or variation from those conditions will require you to make adjustments to your your final numbers. Moving on, we have our notes section. The notes say, short field technique as specified in section four. Okay, so it's important that you're following the short field technique that's prescribed in the POH here. Number two, prior to takeoff from fields above 3,000 foot elevation, the mixture should be lean to give maximum RPM in a full throttle static run-up. Now, one little note here. This states that prior to takeoff from fields above 3,000 foot elevation, as we just mentioned before, the aircraft doesn't care what your elevation is. It only cares about density altitude. So this is a little misleading, in my opinion, It's not about the elevation you're at. You need to lean according to the density altitude. I don't care if you're at sea level with the ocean right next to you. If it's a hot enough day where your density altitude is 3,000 feet or higher, you need to lean that engine for max power at full throttle static run-up. All right, so that's something to be aware of. Even though the POH says 3,000 feet elevation, it's really 3,000 feet density altitude or higher because that's the only thing your airplane and engine care about all right number three in the notes it says decrease distances 10 percent for each nine knot headwind for operation with tailwinds up to 10 knots increase distances by 10 percent for each two knots all right that's very important because remember the conditions under which these numbers were derived we're in a zero wind condition. So now this is, you know, we're fortunate in this case that they're actually telling us what to do with a headwind or a tailwind. It takes the guesswork out of it for you. And then finally, number four, it says for operation on a dry grass runway, increase distances by 15% of the ground roll figure. 
Okay, here that gives a ground roll figure and it gives a total to clear a 50 foot obstacle figure. So it's saying here that you just need to increase the ground roll figure by 15%. So that's nice that it gives us a, a condition for a dry grass runway. But what if you're on a gravel runway or a dirt runway? How are you going to account for that surface with your performance numbers? Well, my initial uh, idea would be to essentially start with that 15% that they mention for a dry grass runway. But this is where, you know, your, your kind of smarts as a pilot, you got to kind of use some common sense and some knowledge that you've gained over your experience to say, you know, do I think 15% is enough for the conditions that I'm in? Maybe it is adequate. Maybe it's even a little uh, conservative. Maybe it's more than I'll need, but that's okay. Or maybe I'll, I'll need to account for even more. Maybe it's not just dirt. Maybe it's a little muddy. Maybe it's a little wet and you expect that to slow you down a little bit more. So you might need to add 20% to the ground roll figure. So these are things you need to be thinking about when coming to a final conclusion for what your takeoff distance is going to be. Now, one thing to understand in general is that there is never one right answer for any given problem or situation. And your DPE on your checkride is not going to expect a single right answer from you. If you said, oh, I think my takeoff distance is going to be 860 feet, they're not going to say, oops, I'm sorry, it's actually 858 feet. Uh, we're going to have to discontinue the checkride. Okay, that's not how it works. What they are looking for is your ability to, yes, read and interpret the performance charts in your POH for your aircraft, accounting for all the proper conditions and all the notes, but then from there, making a conservative calculation to lead to a well-thought-out go or no-go decision. You know, if you come up with a number that's uh, two feet beyond the runway available, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a no-go. If you come up with a number that is 200 feet less than the runway available, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a go. There are more factors involved that can't be charted that you kind of need to think through. And remember, if you're trying to make a go, no-go decision from a takeoff, you're not just looking at how long it's going to take you to get off the ground. If the situation you're in is in a mountainous area at a high density altitude, you might be able to get off the ground but what's around you at that point? There's a good chance there's probably trees and hills and mountains. You might be in a valley with high peaks and high terrain all around you. Are you going to have the climb performance to actually get out of there safely once you are off the ground? Are your skills as a pilot up to the standard to which these numbers would be accurate? In other words, you got to ask yourself, where did these numbers come from in the POH? Well, they came from the manufacturer. How did the manufacturer get these numbers? Well, they had professional test pilots go out and test things with brand new aircraft, with brand new engines, under more or less ideal conditions, probably. Are you a professional test pilot? 
Are you flying a brand new aircraft with a brand new engine under ideal conditions? The answer to all those things is probably no. That needs to be considered in your ultimate go-no-go decision when you are looking at these performance items. So here's how I teach these performance items and, and what I have my students do. I have them run the numbers as they're charted first and foremost. Any information that the chart gives us in the notes, we'll, we'll definitely consider. Okay, so here we'd consider, do we have a headwind or not? Is our surface paved level and dry? Or is it grass or something else? Okay, we will make the adjustments for these conditions. And one thing that you have to consider that's not actually kind of mentioned as far as the notes section, you know, under the conditions here, it says it's a paved level dry runway. But under the notes section, it doesn't give you any uh, information as to what to do if the runway actually does have an incline. You know, if you have a uh, tailwind going one way on a runway, but the runway's downhill, but you have a headwind going the other direction with the runway going uphill, which one is going to be the best option? Obviously, we like to take off into a headwind, but if that incline to the runway is going to prevent us from getting off the runway when we'd like to be off, and perhaps if there's uh, terrain or, or some obstacle off the end of that runway, you're going to have to kind of do some mental math and figure out what you think the, the best and safest option is. So what I have my students do is we run the numbers with all the information that's given to us in the chart, and we come up with a final number. Let's just say that that number, you know, on a 30 degree day ends up being 2000 feet to clear a 50 foot obstacle. And our runway, you know, let's just say it's 2300 feet long. So we have kind of a base number, but then I have them make a pros and a cons list. And this pros and cons list is going to account for everything that is not accounted for already in the information given to us uh, in the chart. Now, there are certain con items that are almost universal. They're almost going to apply all the time. And those are going to be things like, again, you as the pilot, okay, pilot performance, pilot error, whatever you want to call it. Assuming that you are not going to be perfect and flying those numbers, you know, if you're not going to be holding VY or VX exactly, your performance as the pilot is going to make these numbers invalid. So how much buffer do we want to add for your performance as the pilot? Maybe you say, you know, I want to add, that's going to add 200 feet to my calculated uh, distances to clear a 50 foot obstacle. So we're going to write plus 200 under the con for pilot performance. Maybe you know that your engine is little old. It doesn't perform the way it used to. It's not producing max horsepower. So you're going to add an extra 100 feet for that. Okay, plus 100 for old engine, old aircraft. All right, and and uh, and then you think, okay, you know, we're also taking off on an inclined runway. Our, our runway is not flat. We're going uphill. That's going to add another 200 feet, so plus 200. So we got our cons list here with plus 200 for the pilot, plus 100 for the age of the engine or airplane, and plus 200 for the incline on the runway. Then we think about the pros. Now, depending on the information that's given to you in the chart already, there might not be any pros outside of what you've already accounted for. For instance, one pro would be that you have a headwind. 
but that's already accounted for in the chart. It says decreased distances 10% for each nine knots of headwind. So any headwind we would have already accounted for. But if your chart did not say anything about what to do for a head or tailwind, that would be something to account for and put in your pros or cons list, depending on what the winds are actually doing. It is possible that your performance as a pilot could be a pro. If you happen to be extremely experienced and very familiar with the aircraft you're flying, perhaps you know that you can fly that aircraft better than is prescribed. I wouldn't necessarily always want to count on this, but you know, you fly an aircraft long enough, you know that aircraft really well, you know your skills with that aircraft, it could be an asset. Okay? But usually we don't we don't necessarily want to count on that. Other pros could be if you were on a downhill runway, right? If it's a downhill sloping runway, that would be a pro. That would be something we would subtract distance for. We'd go minus 200. Other pros uh, could be the weight of the aircraft. You know, this particular chart, as we mentioned, is for an aircraft that is at maximum gross weight of 2,400 pounds. Now, in a lot of newer POHs, they'll give different performance charts for different weight ranges. But depending on if you have an older aircraft, they might not do that. They might not have different charts for different weights. They might just assume you're at full gross weight. And at that point, it's going to be up to you to account for any weight less than that. So if you didn't have a chart that accounted for any other weights, you could say, okay, well, we're not at full gross weight. We're actually 200 pounds lighter. So let's subtract 100 feet or 200 feet, whatever you, you got to, it's, this is, there's no one right answer, but you've got to kind of make these decisions as pilot in command. So bottom line is once you get all these pros and cons with your pluses and minuses, you're going to add those all up. Okay. We had a total of plus 500 feet in our cons list, 200, 200, and 100. And, you know, on our pros list, we may or may not have anything, but you're going to add them all up. And let's say, okay, we came out with a net total of plus 300. Let's say there was a a pro that we had. Let's say our airplane isn't at gross weight. So we're going to minus 200 from that side. So 500 minus 200 is 300. So we add that 300 feet to our uh, initial number that we got from the chart. So instead of 2,000 feet to clear a 50-foot obstacle, now we're saying, okay, it's going to be 2,300 feet. And remember, being conservative is good in this instance. You don't have to uh, be exact. If anything, you want to err on the side of being conservative and it being longer than what will actually be required. Then from there, it's up to you to make a decision. You say, okay, 2,300 feet to clear a 50-foot obstacle course you're also going to run your numbers for your climb rate okay looking at the terrain and the obstacles around you do you feel confident that once you are in the air you will have a climb rate that's sufficient to keep you clear of terrain and obstacles and now it's just up to you to make that decision and say yes you know i feel comfortable under these circumstances or no i don't and again there's no one right answer but the examiner is going to be looking for you to be making conservative choices that are safe, being able to justify those choices, and then coming up with alternative solutions as necessary. So you could say, you know what? It's very close. I just don't feel comfortable. I just don't feel competent. It's a little bit 
too close for comfort. I'm just going to wait till the evening or I'm going to wait till the next morning. I'm going to stay the night here. We're going to wait till the next morning. It'll be a lot cooler. Our performance should be much better and I'll feel much more comfortable doing that. So that's what your examiner is going to be looking for. That's how I encourage you to approach this process of calculating your performance and limitations. Now, I kind of covered all of that in, in one fell swoop there. We didn't really break down these items, but let's go ahead and go through the items. The knowledge items uh, talk about factors affecting performance to include atmospheric conditions. So again, we're talking about density altitude. We're talking about wind, but Remember that your aircraft only cares about density altitude when it comes to performance. It doesn't care about anything else altitude-wise, okay? So knowing what atmospheric conditions will help improve your performance or hinder it, like a headwind versus a tailwind, a high-density altitude versus a low-density altitude, those are things you need to be well familiar with and take into consideration when interpreting this data and making these go no go decisions our next line item pilot technique okay again in general i, I like to kind of default to our pilot technique and your performance as the pilot to be a negative to be a con to be something that's not going to be quite up to the standard that was set by the professional test pilot who derive these numbers. That's not always the case, but you never really want to assume that you're going to perform better than what the numbers in the book say you can do, right? So really be honest with yourself. How well can you hold an airspeed in a climb? How well can you hold VY without deviating? How well can you maintain directional control and hold a heading? Okay, those are all things you got to be honest with yourself about uh, and account for when making these calculations. Next line item, airplane configuration. Okay, again, the chart that we looked at said that the conditions were with 10 degrees of flaps. If you try to take off without those 10 degrees of flaps, that's going to affect the performance, whether it's an intentional choice or not. But yeah, what, what flap settings are you using? Uh, when do you pull the gear up if you're in a retractable gear aircraft? And how are you, uh, what technique are you using in the takeoff? Are you doing a full static RPM run-up on the threshold before brake release? Or maybe you're only doing a partial RPM run-up before brake release. Or maybe you're doing a rolling start. Okay, all of these things will affect the overall performance of that aircraft in the moment. Next line item, airport environment. So again, this is talking about what obstacles are present, what terrain is around you. What alternative landing areas do you have beyond the, th the runway? Should you have any engine problems or perhaps if you're not making the climb rate that you expected? So these are all things you want to be thinking about when making these decisions. Next line item is loading and center of gravity. We talked about loading and how some charts will account for different gross weights. But if they don't, you need to account for it yourself. Center of gravity. You need to know how different center of gravities affect the performance of your aircraft. How is your aircraft going to perform differently with a forward center of gravity versus an aft center of gravity? Do you know that with an aft center of gravity, your stall speed is actually slower than your forward center of gravity? 
it might be harder to recover from that stall with an aft center of gravity, but the speed itself will be lower than with a forward center of gravity. Your overall airplane characteristics with an aft center of gravity are going to be less stable. However, you will fly slightly faster with an aft center of gravity than you will with a forward center of gravity. If your center of gravity is too far forward, you might have a hard time rounding out for landing. You might not have enough elevator authority to get that nose up high enough. That's why when we look at weight and balance charts for like Cessnas, it has that slope on the front side of the chart on, on the graph. That's why it's not uniform across the whole forward side of the graph because it's accounting for your elevator effectiveness under different loadings. And then our final line item here, weight and balance. And again, this, this kind of plays into the center of gravity and everything we were just talking about. So these are all things that need to be considered when making these go, no go decisions and calculating performance numbers. And finally, our line item, uh, those are all subline items under the factors affecting performance. And then the final line item here is aerodynamics. Now I could do a whole podcast on aerodynamics. There's a lot that goes into aerodynamics. But many of the things that you need to know for this particular section of the check ride, aerodynamic wise, are things that I just mentioned. Things about how center of gravity affect the, the performance of your aircraft. And specifically, uh, if you were in a multi-engine aircraft, how the multi-engine aerodynamics would come into play should you lose an engine on takeoff under the conditions present. All right, moving on to the risk management portion. It says the applicant demonstrates the ability to identify, assess, and mitigate risks encompassing inaccurate use of manufacturer's performance charts, tables, and data. So this can be uh, something that's very easy to do if you're not familiar with how to read these performance charts. You could go you know, straight across on one line when you should have followed it down, right? Or followed it up. You know, it, it can be a little cryptic and that's why this can be frustrating at first when you're learning, but most performance charts that you're following will have an example of how to use them. So always pay attention to the example of how to follow the chart as you are trying to interpret and read it yourself. But beyond that, the biggest use or the biggest inaccurate interpretation of the charts comes with what I started the podcast off saying, which is that people fail to read the conditions and the note sections. They just disregard them completely. And that is the biggest mistake you can make when doing any performance calculation. Next line item is exceeding airplane limitations. Pretty straightforward. I mean, if you uh, overload your aircraft beyond its gross weight uh, capability, you're not going to perform the way that you expect to. That airplane is not going to climb. It's not going to get off the runway when you expect it to. That's how so many you know, see fit accidents and, and accidents after takeoff happen is people don't get the uh, performance they're expecting. That's how stall spin accidents happen because, you know, they see this high terrain coming at them and they can't get the airplane to climb. And what's your instinct? It's to continue to pull back to get over these trees. And you hear the stall warning going off and it just doesn't end well. So it's so important to make sure you're within your aircraft's envelope and that you understand what to expect from your aircraft under the conditions you're in. Last risk management line item is possible differences between calculated performance and actual performance. 
This is where being conservative in your estimations comes into play. This is where that pros and cons list comes into play. You can never take the numbers in the chart at face value. You have to account for variables that are not included in that chart, not least of which being your own performance as a pilot. All right, finally, our skills portion. It says the applicant demonstrates the ability to compute the weight and balance, correct out of center of gravity loading errors, and determine if the weight and balance remains within limits during all phases of flight. So when it comes to weight and balance, for most trainer aircraft, it's pretty straightforward. There's not going to be a lot to do. There's not going to be a lot you can do to even put it out of weight and balance unless you really try hard. But it's not uncommon for the examiner to give you a situation in which you are going to be either overweight or out of balance. And that's okay. They're looking for you to come back and say, you know, under the conditions you gave me, with the number of people we have, with the amount of baggage we have, this isn't going to work, unfortunately. We are overweight. We're out of balance. But... Here is a solution. That's what they're looking for. They want to see that you can recognize that you're not within limits and then give them a solution because ultimately that's what you're going to have to do in the real world with real passengers. They could be family, they could be friends, or they could be paying customers at some point. And they're not going to have any idea about the limitations. They're just going to know that they have their bag with 100 pounds of shoes because they have one pair of shoes for every hour of the day (laughs) and they want to take them with them on vacation. So you need to be able to say, Hey, you know, we're not going to be able to do that. We can either leave some of this behind. We can either leave your shoes behind or we can leave you behind, (laughs) whatever the case is. Um, But sometimes it's not assuming you are not overweight. One thing I see some applicants do is they assume that baggage needs to go in the baggage area of the aircraft. And that's absolutely not true. Most aircraft have a limitation on the amount of weight you can even put in the baggage area. But regardless of how much weight you put in the baggage area, that arm in the baggage area is going to significantly move your center of gravity to the aft limit, especially if you were to have it fully loaded. But assuming there's no one or no two people in the rear seat, if there's room in the rear seat, why not put baggage in the rear seat? That keeps your center of gravity forward and it keeps your aircraft more stable. So don't make the mistake that you have to put baggage in the baggage area. You can move things around however you deem fit as PIC. So assuming you're not overweight, play around with different uh, configurations as far as where you're putting different people or things to see if you can keep it within the CG limit. In some more advanced situations with more advanced aircraft uh, that you're probably not going to be flying for your private pilot checkride, certain aircraft have their CG move throughout the flight based on fuel burn and which tanks uh, the fuel is coming from. And that's why they'll have different phases of flight that need to be conducted on certain tanks over the other. Or you'll need to be aware of how the CG changes over the course of a flight as you burn fuel. Because while you might not be taking off outside of CG limits, two hours into the flight after you've burned this much fuel, you might end up out of CG limits. So those are some situations that are unique to different aircraft that you're probably not going to have to worry about for your private pilot checkride. Maybe perhaps in your 
instrument or commercial further down the line. But for the most part, it's gonna be pretty straightforward for your trainer aircraft. All right, finally, we have our last skill line item. It says, utilize the appropriate airplane manufacturers approved performance charts, tables, and data. That's basically everything we just talked about, being able to read a chart, being able to interpret it properly, and being able to account for variables that are not included in that chart to come up with a smart, conservative number with all the data you have available to you to be able to make a good, well-thought-out, go-no-go decision. That's what it comes down to. All right, guys. Well, that's going to about do it for our performance limitations. I hope this has been helpful for you. I know this is one thing that many students struggle with. But if you just think of it in the terms that I've laid out uh, about being making smart decisions and accounting for all variables, it's really pretty straightforward and you're going to do just fine on your check ride. I really appreciate you spending time with me today and we'll see you next time on Centerline. <music>